members, deliver world-class hospitality, create memorable connections, and be famous for friendly service. Now, some of you have been here for other services, so you don't answer. But anyone else, does anybody know what company that is, if you had to guess? Oh, that's a good, good guess. Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines. I'm going to give you the second one now. Second company, their first core value is we're here to serve. We keep the needs of our operators, their team members, and customers at the heart of our work. Core value number two is we're better together. It's through teamwork and collaboration that we do our best work. Core value number three is we are purpose-driven. We model our purpose every day, connecting our work and daily activities to our business strategy, supporting each other's efforts to be good stewards who create positive impact on all who come into contact with us. And our last core value is we pursue what's next. We find energy in adapting and reinventing how we do things, from the way we work to how we care for others. Any guesses on that one? I heard the answer earlier. Chick-fil-A. That's Chick-fil-A, right? And what I think is so impressive about both those companies, if you think about it, both those companies actually have a reputation in their industries for a unique culture. Like the employees really do a good job of living out those values, right? What, when you go into Chick-fil-A and ask for something, how do they always respond? My pleasure. And they actually mean it, right? Or at least they act like they do. You really think they mean it, okay? So that's the same thing that can happen here. As we live out these values, it will impact, it will mold the culture. And that's going to spill over not just to the relationships we have at church, but the relationships we have at home, the relationships we have in our community. So let's go ahead and jump in. Core value number one, and I'm going to read the core value, and I'm going to read most of the main points twice since we don't have a screen for you today. So hopefully you guys really catch this. So core value number one is we look to God and His Word in all that we do. The Bible guides us in our everyday lives, not just on Sunday. I'll read that to you guys again. We look to God and His Word in all we do. The Bible guides us in our everyday lives, not just on Sunday. This is core value number one because all of our values flow out of God's Word. I hope you know that as a staff, we look to God's Word in all the decisions that we make. Now, does that mean we always make the right decision? Of course not. We're still human. We still sin. We're still broken. But when we're faced with a plan of action, we're going to look to God's Word and let it dictate what we do. Now, here's what that means. Here's point number one for today's sermon. We hold a biblical worldview elevating God's truth above our own opinions or the trends of culture. And we recognize that this is going to be more radical with each new generation. Read that again, guys. We hold a biblical worldview elevating God's truth above our own opinions or the trends of culture. And we recognize this will be more radical with each new generation. Now, before we dig into that, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about the reliability of the Bible. And I want to give you evidence for the reliability of the Bible. I don't want you to just take my word for it. And the reason I want to do this is because if the Bible is just another book, then this would be the silliest core value you could have. If the Bible is just another book, then there's no reason it should be authoritative in our lives. But the Bible is not just another book. It's literally the very words of God. See, if the Bible is just another book, we could claim that it's no longer relevant. 
or that it really only was important to the original audience to which it was written. Or we could say that, you know, the translation has been lost as it's been passed down from generation to generation. And so I want to give you four specific areas of evidence on why you can trust the Bible. And I'm going to use an acronym to do this. The acronym is MAPS, M-A-P-S. Now, if you grew up in the church or if you're really into apologetics, you've probably heard this. But if not, this will help you the next time somebody questions the reliability of the Bible. So the MAPS acronym goes like this. The M stands for Manuscript Evidence. Manuscript evidence deals with how we can test to see if the copies that we possess accurately translate what was originally written. And the more copies we have, the easier it is to work back to the originals. The other key factor is the the lapse in time between the original document and the earliest manuscripts that we have access to. When it comes to any work of ancient literature, the Bible dwarfs everything else when it comes to manuscript evidence. It is not even close. We have over 14,000 manuscripts and manuscript pieces of the Old Testament. And the earliest ones we have access to were written only 150 to 200 years after the originals. For the New Testament, we have over 5,500 manuscripts and manuscript pieces. And the earliest ones we have access to were written only 60 years after the original. Compare that to other ancient works like Homer's The Iliad. We only have 1,800 manuscripts of the Iliad. Or the works of Plato, we only have 200 manuscripts of the works of Plato. Or Sophocles, who wrote Greek tragedies, we only have 193 manuscripts for the works of Sophocles. And yet, I never hear anybody say, well, how do we know that's what Homer really wrote? How do we know that didn't get lost in translation? Nobody ever argues that's not what Plato really said. And yet the Bible has many, many more manuscripts and the length of time from the originals to the earliest manuscripts we have is much shorter than any other ancient work. Manuscript evidence is a reason we can trust the Bible. The A in MAPS stands for archaeological evidence. Over and over again, comprehensive fieldwork and accurate interpretation of the Bible has proven that the Bible is historically accurate. One of the most well-known New Testament examples concerns the books of Acts and Luke. So there was a famous archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey who was trained in archaeology and he set out his life's mission was to disprove the books of Luke and Acts. But after painstaking research and after many trips to the Mediterranean region and years and years of archaeology, he converted to Christianity. Because one after another after another of what those books claimed to be true was revealed in the archaeological research. So archaeological evidence is reason number two we can trust the Bible. He's not the only guy. There have been hundreds of people who have set out to disprove the Bible that converted to Christianity when they really looked at the evidence. The P stands for prophetic evidence. Do you know Jesus fulfilled over 350 Old Testament prophecies? And there are many more examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament as well. And then lastly, the S stands for statistical evidence. And this goes hand in hand with prophetic The statistical probability that all of those prophecies could be fulfilled by accident or by chance is off the charts. 
It's like one in a quadzillion. It's a number that I can't even get my mind around. See, the reality is the Bible was written over 1,500 years by approximately 40 different authors in three different languages and covers hundreds of subjects. But it tells one unified, non-contradictory story. And that's about the redemption of humankind. So based on statistical evidence, the Bible is not just another book. So I encourage you guys to use that when you're talking with some new questions around the bit of the Bible. Use that acronym, MAPS. And then if you need more evidence, go to PursueGod.org. We have dozens and dozens of conversations specifically on why you can trust the accuracy of the Bible. Because we can trust the Bible, we elevate its truths above our own opinions or the trends of culture. And we recognize this will become more and more radical with each generation. And we see that happening now, don't we? I mean, look at the culture around us. Individuals who stand for biblical truth are often vilified now. Behaviors that are against God's word that at, one, that at one time society pretty much frowned upon are now celebrated. And if you have the courage to stand up and say, hey, that's not what God's word says, it's called hate speech. I've seen it happen in our own church. When we did our anthropology series a couple of months ago, I taught the first lesson of that series at another campus. And the heart of that lesson was that God created men and women to be different. That men and women are of equal value and dignity and worth in the eyes of God, but they are not the same. They're different. In fact, when God looked over his creation on day seven and he said, or excuse me, at the end of day six, and he said, it is very good. Part of what made it very good was the differences between men and women. We should celebrate that, not push back against it. And when I said that, a lady in the congregation shot up out of her chair, left the chapel, went to kids' church, checked out her daughter, and said, I hope you're not teaching the same thing in here that they're teaching in there. And it breaks my heart that someone who would call themselves a Christian would put their own feelings and opinions in the trends of our culture above what God's Word clearly communicates. And that's only going to get more and more common with each new generation. We need to be prepared for that. We need to be ready for that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us why the Bible is authoritative. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people for every good work. All Scripture is is inspired by God. The original Greek word that's used for inspire here is theopneustos. It literally means God breathed. That the original words given to the original authors were God breathed. The original authors wrote down exactly what God laid on their heart. Nothing more, nothing less. See, as I'm meeting with people who are in a difficult time in their life or struggling with a big decision, sometimes they'll say, well, I just don't hear from God. And I want to gently ask them, whose fault is that? If you will open this book, you can't help but hear from God. His very words are written on the pages. That should blow us away. Do you realize what a privilege it is that anytime you and I want to, we get to hear from the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, if we open His Word? Now, I know that God speaks through His Spirit. God speaks through His people. God speaks through creation. 
Anybody see the sunrise through the smoke this morning? If that's not God saying hello, I don't know what is. It was beautiful. But the primary way God chose to reveal himself to us is through his written word. So if you want to hear from God, get in the word. Imagine if you were a basketball player and you had the opportunity to hear from Michael Jordan every day. You could spend 10, 15, 20 minutes a day with the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Sorry, LeBron and Kobe fans, but that's just reality, okay? (laughs) And he would teach you how to be a better basketball player. He would prepare you and equip you and correct you. Would you take advantage of that? Of course you would. If basketball was important to you, you would do that. Well, that's the opportunity we have to spend time with God every day in his word. And it says that he'll use that time to prepare us, to equip us. So if you want to be a better dad, a better husband, a better mom, a better wife, a better coworker, be in God's word and let him equip you and train you to do that. And I want to talk for a second about the fact that it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, not just the red letters. Now, if you're new to church, what I mean by that is in many Bibles, the words attributed to Jesus are written in red. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the red letters. All of the Bible, from the first word to the last word, is inspired by God, not just the red letters. So I remember having a conversation with a guy last fall, a, a believer. I know this guy loves Jesus. I, I know he's trusting in Jesus for his salvation. He said, John, I'm having a hard time reconciling Jesus' gospel with Paul's gospel. And, and I kind of know what he means by that. I kind of know what he's saying. But I explained to him, there, there's one gospel. Paul's gospel didn't come from Paul. It's God-breathed. It came directly from God. See, it might sound super spiritual to elevate Jesus' words over the rest of Scripture, but when you do that, what you're really saying is that the only words that are really God-breathed are the ones in red. Friends, that's a very slippery slope. Because when you start elevating passage of Scripture over another passage, it will eventually lead to ignoring the ones that make us uncomfortable, the ones that are difficult to do. But because all Scripture is God-breathed and because He uses it to teach us what is right and correct what is wrong, that carries with it some important implications. And that leads us to point number two. And that's that we submit to the Bible as the authoritative voice in our everyday lives. We recognize that true believers must come to God on His terms, not their own. I want to read that to you again. Point number two, we submit to the Bible as the authoritative voice in our everyday lives, we recognize that true believers must come to God on His terms, not their own. And there are a couple of words in that point that we don't like very much. We don't like to submit. We don't like someone to have authority over us and to tell us what to do. But the simple truth is God is God, and you and I are not. But He is also good He knows what is best for you. He wants what is best for you. And so we submit to Him and His authority, even when it's not easy. You know, God's Word says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to say, God, have you seen my neighbor? (laughs) Have you seen what his dog does in my yard every day? He's a Raiders fan, for crying out loud. You want me to love that guy? And God says, yes, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Or God's word says sex outside the bonds of marriage is sin. And we want to argue, but God, I love him and we're going to get married anyway. Everybody else is doing it. What's the big deal? God's word says forgive as you have been forgiven. And we want to scream, do you know what they did to me? Do you know the hurt they caused me? 
And in those moments, it really boils down to who's going to call the shots in your life. Who has the authority? Are you going to let God have the authority or are you going to take position on the throne of your life and say, it's okay, God, I, I know what you said, but I know better. Now, most of us aren't arrogant enough to actually say that, but that's what we're doing. When we know what God's word says and we choose to go a different way, we're essentially saying, God, I, I got it. I saw what you said, but I know better than you do. That's the oldest play in the book. <laughs> it's what Adam and Eve did back in the garden all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We've been doing it ever since. That's that battle between the sinful nature and the spirit that we talked about last week. Now, I remember within the first couple of weeks of becoming the pastor here, I was here on a Sunday and there was a young lady in the congregation. I could tell she was really emotional and I didn't know what was going on. But after the service, I just went over and I asked her if I could help her, if I could pray for her. And, and she just shared with me that, that things between her and her husband had been really, really rough. And she'd been praying about it and she said, God's directed me to file for divorce because he wants me to be happy. And I told her I was really sorry for her hurt. I told her I was sorry for the brokenness that she was experiencing. I was sorry that her husband wasn't living up to be the kind of husband God called him to be. And I said, but I can promise you God is not leading you to file for divorce. I can promise you that God wants you to fight for your marriage. And you should have seen the look of shock on her face. She couldn't believe that I would say that. She's like, you don't think I should get a divorce? Everybody else is telling me to get a divorce. And I said, well, let's look at what God's word says. Because it doesn't matter what I think, it matters what God's Word says. So I showed her some passages, and I gave her some passages I encouraged her to read throughout the week as she got home. And when she left there, I was really discouraged. You ever have one of those conversations where you feel like you're talking to the wall? If you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, right? I just didn't feel like it was sinking in. But about three days later, she called me back. She said, I've been reading the passages that we went through and I've been praying about it. And she said, I just want to honor God. I was on cloud nine. I was ecstatic. She said, I just didn't know what God's word said about marriage. I didn't realize what it said. See, the first part to submitting to God's word in our lives, God, is we have to know what it says. Right? If you don't know what the word of God says, there's nowhere you're going to submit to it. That's why we have to be in the word every day, not just on Sundays. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. The psalmist knew it was God's words. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart, so that I may not sin against you. And the apostle Peter echoes that in 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read this to you guys. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Peter writes, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No. These prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Nothing in the Bible came from human initiative. It was all inspired by God. It is all God-breathed, even the book of Numbers. Now, if you didn't laugh, you've never trudged through the book of Numbers. Okay? That leads us to a very important point. This is our last point for today. We commit to a personal pursuit of God through His Word, not just an intellectual pursuit. We recognize that even the Bible could become an idol if not handled correctly. I'll read that one more time. Last point. We commit to a personal pursuit of God through His Word, not just an intellectual pursuit. We recognize that even the Bible can become an idol if not handled correctly. Have you ever even considered that the Bible could become an idol? 
See, anytime we put something above God in our life, even something as good as the Bible, that makes it an idol. Now, the Bible is awesome. The Bible is the revealed Word of God, but we don't just simply read it to read it. We read it to pursue a relationship with Him. We read it to connect with Him. We read it because God is revealing Himself to us through that. Did you know there are people who have PhDs in biblical studies that don't have a relationship with Jesus? They have spent years and countless hours studying the Bible. They know it way better than I do. They know it from front to back. They know the original languages. They've memorized entire chapters and in some cases entire books of the Bible and they don't recognize they need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. That blows me away. But it's nothing new that happened in Jesus' earthly ministry when he was dealing with the religious leaders. We see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Jesus said, you're spending all your time in the scriptures. You're searching them. And the the word searching there means to closely examine. That's the thought behind the original word. He goes, you're looking at those and they all point to me. The answer is right in front of your face and you refuse to see it. You refuse to come to me to get this life that you need. It all points to Jesus. All the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, point to Jesus and what he did for us and how to have a relationship with him. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Jesus makes the comment that all the scriptures point to him. One of my favorite examples of this is in Luke chapter 25. In Luke chapter 25, we see these two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. And this is after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. And so these guys are walking along and they're having this real intense conversation. And Jesus kind of comes up out of nowhere. He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only guy who doesn't know what's happened the last three days in Jerusalem? Don't, haven't you heard? Don't you know what's going on? And they start to tell them about Jesus, and about how Jesus was crucified. And then they say, and then our women went to the tomb on the third day, and it was empty. And, and other disciples went, and it was empty. And then Jesus replies in verse 25, and he says the following, O foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And then here's what he says in verse 27. I love this. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so starting from the very beginning of the Bible, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. It's all about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's about Jesus and who he is and what he did for us. See, my time in the Word is always so much deeper and so much more encouraging when I'm doing it to connect with Jesus. But I'll confess there's a lot of days that's how I read the Word. I know that reading the Bible is a spiritual discipline. I know I should do it, and I tend to be a box checker in my life. And so a lot of days I just do it to check the box. And I wish that wasn't the case, but I'm just being honest with you guys. But, but when I really slow down and when I really seek connection when I'm reading the Word, it's so much better. It's so much deeper. I hear so much more from God. Now, there are a lot of different ways to read the Bible, and and really, I think everyone should kind of play around with different ways to see what works best for you. So for some people, they'll try to read through the Bible in a year. 
I think that's awesome. I know, I know my wife's done the Through the Bible in a Year plan several times. I think that's a great way to read. For other people, they'll just take one book of the Bible and really dig into it and really just stay in that until they finish it. Then they'll move to something else. That works too. Maybe you, maybe you prefer to listen to it instead of read it. I mean, with technology now, you can listen to the Bible everywhere you go. A plan that I did for years that I really enjoyed is I would read one, one uh, chapter in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament, one chapter in Psalms, and then one verse in Proverbs. I did that for many years, and I, and I always felt like I got a lot out of that. However you read it, read it to pursue God. Don't read it just to check the box. Again, I, I wish I could say I always do that. I don't. But here's something that I've started to do that helps me kind of slow down when I'm reading through a passage, when I'm really reading for connection. If I really want to know God more, right? So there's four questions that I'll ask myself as I go through the passage. The first question is, do I learn anything about God and His character as I read this? I mean, if I'm trying to connect with God, then obviously I want to know Him. I want to know what He's like. So I ask, is there anything I learned about God and His character in this passage? Second question I'll ask is, do I learn anything about myself in this passage? And maybe that has to do with my sinful nature, or maybe it has to do with my new identity in Christ, but do I learn something about myself? The third question, is there a command I need to obey in this passage? Because if I want to know someone well, then I want to know what makes them happy. I want to know what brings them joy. So is there a command that I should obey as I read this? And then the last question I ask, is there a promise that I can claim in this passage? God's Word is filled with so many promises that we can hold on to when times are tough. Now again, like I said, I don't ask those questions every time, but when I really slow down and do that, I feel so much more connection with God as I read His Word. However you decide to do it, make time to be in God's Word. Let God's Word be the authority in your life. Let Him call the shots. Because guys, I'm telling you, if that's a value that we all buy into as a church, it will transform our church. It'll transform the relationships we have within the church and the relationships we have outside the church with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our community. It'll be awesome if we do it. And it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. I'm telling you right now, you're going to come under more and more persecution and criticism if you stand on God's word. That's the way this culture is headed. It's not going to be easy but it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. I just want to wrap up by speaking to anyone who might be here that's never begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and you might be wondering, well, then how would the Bible benefit me? Read the Bible. The Bible says that the Scriptures make us wise unto salvation, and what you're going to experience as you read the Bible is it's all about Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, there's one unified story in the Bible, and that unified story is this. That God created us to have a relationship with Him and to bring Him glory. But because of sin, that relationship was broken. And He had every right to leave us there. But because of His mercy and because of His grace, He did. And He sent His Son, who came down and lived the perfect life that we could never live, who died on the cross for our sins. And when we put our faith in Jesus, when we come to Him and say, Jesus, I'm broken, I need a Savior, and I trust that what you did on the cross was enough, And we tell Jesus, you get to call the shots now. You are Lord and Savior of my life. When we do that, a great exchange happens. That Jesus takes our sin and our shame on himself, and we get clothed with his righteousness. And we get to experience this full and abundant life here, and we have life in eternity. 
If you've never done that, if you have questions about that, we'd love to talk about that with you. We'd love to pray with you after the service. I encourage you to take that step today. And then lastly, just for those of us who've already done that, I really hope and pray that the beginning this week, that we would look to God and His Word in all that we do. And I promise you guys, if we do that, God's going to do something amazing through Alpine Church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reliability of your word. I'm just so thankful, God, that your word can be trusted and that there's evidence that it can be trusted. It's not just a, it's not just a hopeful fairy tale that we have. God, I am thankful that your word corrects and teaches and equips and prepares us. That, that's all great. That's all important. But even more than that, God, I'm, I'm just grateful that we have the opportunity to engage in a relationship with you because of your word. Through your word and because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can know you and we can be known by you. God, I pray that Alpine would be a church that is known as a church that looks to you and your word and all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.